Hello, I am Francis Lombard, and welcome to Portrait of an Editor. After two years, I catch up with first second editor Kiara Valdez. In our conversation, we discuss the path she took to reach the title of editor, the reasons behind extended payouts, and we have some fun talking about what's been going on with Moon Knight and the Scarlet Witch in the MCU. A reminder, please check out the Portrait of an Editor Patreon page. You can find my earlier interviews from all the way back to 2017, and it's just a buck a month to join. Now here's my conversation with Kiara. Enjoy. Hi, Kiara. Welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. Hopefully we're all awake by now, so thank you for joining me this Sunday morning. And I think my allergy medicines are kicking in a bit, so hopefully I won't be too loopy throughout this interview. <laughs> well, the last time, first and last time we talked was August of 2020. And back then you were uh, an assistant editor, is that correct? Yes. Congratulations in order because you are now an editor at first second, right? Yes. Make sure everybody's up to speed on that. But before we started recording, we were talking how you got there. And this is um, one thing for me as, you know, you were just discussing about how you got to that point and finally got, you know, got your promotions. And it was that at my job too, I just started a new job and I had to basically leave to get a promotion and move up. So can you explain, because you started as an assistant editor when we last talked, you then you got bumped to associate editor, and then now you're an editor in the course of two years. How does that happen in the publishing realm that you're in? Because we move back and forth, you're at first, second, so I've talked to people at DC or Skybound or you know Image or Marvel, and it's a different world there, but for where you are, how did you get here now? I mean, it's so vastly different from yeah. like a direct market and versus like traditional publishing. Like I talk to people who do comics and like Marvel and DC and like they're like editor moving like a year and a half. And they're like, mm-hmm. what are all these rings and steps that you guys do over there in trade? Um, and yeah, we're just like running through like the hierarchy. Um, I, I've been at for second for six years and you start at, as um, editorial assistant and then you move to assistant editor. Yep, those are like the same words, just switched. Um, <laughs> and it's about like two years for each position. At least that's what they want it to be traditionally. And unfortunately, um, after like, even if you are really fast in your career, you're like making connections really fast and you're like really acquiring really good books and like your books even hit the list early on, it doesn't really matter how they promote you. Um, because they want you to kind of stick it out, unfortunately. And it's not necessarily fully on the manager's end. It's kind of just because the manager has to approve, get approval for your promotion from the higher ups. And it's just like a whole system thing. Um, so yeah, since la- last time you saw me, I was um, assistant editor. And after assistant editor goes associate. And I was promoted to associate the beginning of 2021. Um, but I, I personally thought... Um, I was, and oftentimes people are doing the job above them for a while, while before they even get promoted. And I I felt like I was doing the job above me. Um, But the only way to get the editor position I wanted, and I thought that I deserved, um, was to go out and get another offer. And that is an open secret in publishing. It happens so often that people, in order to get promoted, instead of getting promoted as they should um, and their company recognizing their efforts um, and the name they've made 
for themselves in this industry. They have to go out, do an application process, which is like not fun. Mine wasn't very fun at all. It took like two months and required a lot of work. Um, And then you go back to your company and you hope they want you still. Like you're like, here's an offer I got from someone else. But some people... The company is like, okay, good luck. Have fun at that other place. And then for me, luckily, my for a second really appreciates my work and really wanted me to stay. So they offered me a new position and um, a higher salary. Uh, and that's where that's why I'm an editor now. That's why I got promoted twice in 2021. Yeah, my my day job. I mean, I after I told them I was leaving, I, because of where they are, they've always had. Um, personnel issues of just maintaining a workforce. I thought mm-hmm. maybe they might counter. And I'm like, nope. I got the letters and sort of one was a little pissy. And I'm like, no, I guess I'm going to the new job. So, but yeah, it just, uh, they, when you said that you were looking, now you had an offer on the table from a different publisher. Yeah, I wasn't even looking. I was, someone was trying to poach me. <laughs> okay. I was wondering, is there headhunting yeah. going on? So somebody had approached you and, and stuff, but you still had to do yeah. work for a couple months. Yeah, you do. You, you do. I mean, it also, it was the second time I was being headhunted in 2021. <laughs> so the first time I had just been promoted to associate, I was like, nah, like it's fine. I was just promoted. And then a year went on. This was near the end of 2021. And I was like, this is the second time someone's trying to poach me at a completely different company. Uh, So I'm going to do this. I'm going to see where it lands me. It's always good to at least keep your eyes open and see what's out there, right? And consider all the possibilities. And I did, like after two months of consideration and like doing that, I still was like, I, I, if I had, if I had a choice, if they gave me a choice, I would still pick for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did give me that choice. Uh, so I stayed with for a second, uh, cause I do love it here. Uh, I just want to be recognized for my efforts and I was, and I'm in a good place now, at least emotionally and feeling valued, but otherwise I wouldn't have been looking, but yes, they made me cause it was another position in a trade publishing job. They just, mm-hmm. even when you're mid career, they make you do like editorial tests. Like they made me mm, yeah. do two editorial tests, which was like uncalled for and totally wild. But um, th- I guess that just shows how much they cared about who they were hiring. You know, I've been at a panel and talk about even at Marvel, people had to do editorial tests. That what I mean, what exactly is that? Just uh, if you can talk about it, of like what did they want to see from you? I mean, obviously they they were offering you a position of being an editor. So they felt that you were capable from just what they saw on your, you know, on the outside of what you were doing and the end results of your work. So they felt you were capable, but yet they still wanted you to test twice. What were they, what is that test? If, if that secret could be revealed. Well, it was, this is complicated because I was going, I'm a specialist, right? I work only in graphic novels in first second. Um, And I was, the people trying to push me were an, a imprint that does prose as well um mm-hmm. and they're like i hadn't shown that i could edit prose so the, their first test was actually the first test was verse which was completely left field uh and i edited that i i did a good job went on past um that round and then they gave me a prose looked at it um which i did knowing that, okay, I guess they need to see both of these to see, like, I can not only edit graphic novels, but also other forms of um, writing. Um, and then I passed that too, which is nice to know that I can 
do I want to edit posts forever? Again, no, not really. Um, but it's good to know I can, uh, and that people thought I did a good job. I think that's just it. They they were trying to see if the notes I gave them made sense um, and were like nuanced and thoughtful and they made me do edit letters so like that I could write a proper edit letter you know I don't truly I feel like uh, editorial is so subjective that like I do yeah. wonder how hard it is to like be on the other end of of hiring people um but yeah that was pretty much that and I I think every like edit test or even like applying for an imprint is probably different from imprint to imprint um yeah did they ask for recommendations? Did they ask for anything? Yeah, to, because you know, the usual, like the references. They they mm-hmm. they asked for references and stuff like that. Yeah, references because, as you just said, I mean, how do you judge, you know, an editorial? T- I mean, are, are they looking for your point of view more than anything? If you know, there are no correct answers, are there really in these tests, or are there? I don't think there's correct answers per se. Like I, I mean, it'd be bad if you couldn't find something. Yeah, that you needed to critique and needed to fix. Uh, but yeah, it's more like you have your own point of view. You have vision that you, as an editor, you should always be able to look at a project that hasn't been edited in and have some vision for it. Um, so that's kind of what they were looking for. And obviously they do like interviews to make sure you're like a good person. You have good ideas on your head. Uh, you have an, like a, a, an angle you can bring to this mm-hmm. new place. So it's a lot of that. Um, yeah. What about tone? Because editing, as anybody who's listened to this podcast knows, there's a lot of interaction with other people. You have to be able to be a people person in a way. What about yeah. your tone to addressing critique for an artist or, or, or a creator that, you know, are they, do you think they're looking for that too? Your ability to ask for changes or say no to somebody, but in a way that is productive because, um, you know, an editor can, you know, make or break a relationship with a creator because of just how they interact with them, the chemistry between the two of them. Or they, do you think they were looking for that or do they find it somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, they, they probably were in the sense of like, that's why they asked for an edit letter. And for me, and like edit letters for me are such a like a more, it's less of a graphic novel comics thing and more of a like traditional publishing because I don't really do edit letters um, as an editor. Uh, I like write an email and I'm pretty informal with my authors, but that's me. Like I like that informality. I like coming off really genuine and as a friend, still like having the, you know, boundaries and know, like letting them know, like I'm wearing my editor hat right now, but having that friendliness. Uh, whereas this imprint wanted me to write an edit letter, which I was like, okay, how do you even, and I edit letters are basically just like mm. fancier, more, you know, formally uh, written uh, feedback. Uh, and that's where the tone comes in, but I didn't change my tone too much. It was still very, like, it was just not, it was less playful. It was just more straightforward. And obviously like with, as an editor, you, you want to like give compliments. Like you always start an edit letter with what you like, right? Uh-huh. Just to like, let them know that you really like what you're reading. And then you like lay on like, okay, and here are the changes. And as an editor, you always like want to make your tone not authoritative. You know, it's like all of them are suggestions. Uh, your author can just not take them. And honestly, you would, it would suck, but you'd be like, okay. 
I guess we have to publish this book as is. Um, but hopefully it, it, anyone who's working with an editor isn't like that because then what's the point of working with an editor, right? So after you go through all that, how did you approach for a second that something's, ha- you know, that you're considering moving on to a different publisher? Were you hoping for them to ask you to stay or did it really matter to you at that point? Yeah, I was hoping for them to counter. That was always my hope. Uh, I, I do love my job for a second. It's a very specific kind of job that I can't really find anywhere else. Like now there are more graphic novel imprints that only do graphic novels, but um, they're currently not, look. they were not at the time looking for people. Um, mm-hmm. And... So I, I do very like very much cherish my position at for a second. So I you're just I was just straightforward with my I have a very like collegial and also like friendly relationship with my manager. Um and I was just like, hey, I got an offer from somewhere else. Um you have this amount of time to counter. Let me know. <laughs> and that's very, very much what just happens. That's like a very normal thing to do. Um, unless you like really hate your job, which some people do and they like just say here I got an offer goodbye like I'm I'm leaving in two weeks that that's when you don't even want to counter from them I very much feel like I would love to know if you know McMillan would like to counter or things like that um and again I for any readers out listeners out there like this is so normal in publishing it's not even funny um this is why like my boss was like oh, okay uh I'll, I'll go see what I can do um because it just happens that my boss's boss probably has done that for my boss maybe has done that before like it's just such a common thing to do or like if you don't get you know, if your company doesn't counter, you just people switch companies. There's so much musical chairs happening all the time, um, especially in the mid the mid rank. So like around assistant or associate editors, where you start seeing people moving company to company, um, just to try to get that promotion that they want. Did they know about the first time that you were uh, somebody approached you? Yeah, but I just so. I I didn't I I just got an information interview because I wanted to know what at that time at the time that was a comics company, but it was like a 360 comics company. And I was like, how do those even work? So I just took the interview to know more about our industry, mm-hmm. and I did let my manager know, but it was more like an FYI. It was like, hey, by the way, like these people approached me, um, and it was very like it wasn't like I didn't get an offer. I didn't go that far because I didn't think I at the time I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Now, so, okay, so they know that this is happening and this, they, you know, probably some of them, their careers were established by moving to a different company and getting a bump up. So they're, it's almost in a way that they're aware that other publishers will approach their associate and assistant editors. And then once, depending on how you handle it, how that associate or assistant editor handles informing their current boss, that's when they react. It's almost like they're either in two years you'll get promoted or we'll have to think about holding on to you if you get another offer. It seems like that there's no, well, not to be sort of put it in a way, but there's no reason for them to rush you along and promote you within that two-year period because either you will still be there or there will be an offer from another publisher and that force, you know, not forces them, but they then they have to act maybe a little bit earlier. Is is it almost seems like that's the commonplace sort of way people move around or get promoted in a way. You know, the, yeah. the, they're not shocked by you going, oh, I just got an offer and I'm thinking of moving to another publisher. 
because they sort of expect it from you. Well, expect yeah. it from associate editors or assistant editors. In a sense. I mean, not like everyone's getting poached, right? It's not like <laughs> there's not that many open positions. And it also just depends on like, I don't know, like where you are. Like for second is a very specific place, right? Like yeah. we, I mean, technically, I mean, back in the day, like Gina Gagliano got, went on and started her own mm-hmm. friend, even though she's not there anymore. Um, and like Andrew Arnold went on and started Harper Alley, you know? So like it, it, we're seen as a place of like expertise for this specific yeah. thing. So like it, it, it's not uncommon, especially for places like for a second to like have someone always looking at, you know, their editors. Um, but yeah, it is unfortunate. Like publishing is very reactive and not proactive <laughs> um, in the sense that you were explaining. Um, but then that also makes... Like maybe it's not two years. Um, maybe someone's in a position for three years, right, or more, and like they're like, "Well, when the heck am I getting promoted?" And that's when they start getting antsy. I mean, I've never been looking out for jobs. I'm luck. I'm lucky that people have approached me, but there are other people and friends of mine that are like are he- where they're simmering and sitting on in their position for three years, and they're like, "Okay, I- I'm gonna have to start looking because you get restless and." you start feeling unvalued, right? So I would hope that like publishing would stop doing that, you know, that promote people in the way. Or like, it, it feels like it's pointless that you do extra efforts, you know? There's certain editors that are out there, like I know I've been super proactive about, you know, making a name for myself in the graphic mm-hmm. novels, little niche circle and like going to conferences, doing so many conferences a year, like doing like all these things to like get my name out there and like be a good editor and get you know, because you make a name for yourself, you attract more good projects. That is just how it works. Like half of this job is networking and like talking to people and being being a people person. And if they're going to promote you just the same, whether you do that or you just sit on your butt and do absolutely nothing, then it just starts, you know, scratching at you. Like it starts like, you know, it becomes a burden. You start thinking, well, what did I put all that effort into all this for? You know, I could have just done what they asked me to do and nothing more yeah um and that's the sad reality i think um about publishing um yeah i was talking to i just remember now uh, i've had a couple conversations with bryce carlson earlier on in the podcast and i think some of them are still available for the listeners if you haven't heard it but one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to him was because boom studios and they just did another round that Boom Studio does promotions on an, a regular basis. And I asked him, you know, is this an attempt to hold on to the talent you have in your editorial team? Um, you know, and yes, it is. It's a re- it's acknowledgement of their hard work and also an, a way of um, holding on because they are aware of the poaching that occurs. And if you look at their editorial team, you really don't have much turnover, especially at the top. Hopefully I'll be able to get some boom people on to talk about that too, because they just did another round. But it was interesting of them having that. But that's a different kind of publisher too. To switch gears, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you after all this time was you were talking about extended payouts by publishing. (laughs) I hope the podcast is this episode's not about bashing on publishers, but um, when COVID first hit, nobody knew what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. And there has been an issue of supply lines with paper, paper shortage, everything from, you know, toilet paper, as we all know, to, <laughs> you know, to books being sort of delayed in the comic, you know, direct market because 
nowadays there are books being rescheduled or you know publishers having to sh- uh, change their um, publishing schedule just because availability of paper. Um, and that's where the extended payouts came about of pushing, stringing out payouts. But now everybody thought maybe it might be a short-term thing, but now it's beginning to seem like it might be holding. And I remember when I was working animation, it went from a 30-day turnaround to getting paid up to then six weeks. And it's not just 30 days of waiting. You might wait those 30 days and then have to have your agent call the people and go, where's the check? And then you're waiting another two weeks. So they already Mm -hmm. were, you know, and then now it's six weeks, you wait before, you know, the time's up and then you have your agent call and now you're waiting two months to get paid. Uh, And can you explain where things are with extended payouts? Because you're part of a publisher, the publisher. So you're dealing with that, but it seemed like something that also puts an editor into a weird position because for me, the first time I was reading about it, now, this forces the creator to get other jobs and be working on not just one thing at a time, but a couple of things just to be able to have a livable wage in a way, mm-hmm. because the way the payouts sort of break down that if you're only waiting for one payout, you might only make $15,000 that year and no one can survive off of that um, <laughs> anywhere in this country. So mm-hmm. what what's, you know, it's been a little while since you were talking about it, but where's your take on that nowadays? So actually, less than the paper um, per se, what really dictated uh, stretching out payouts, um, it's splitting. It's most it more like splitting payouts. It's making them from half on signing, half on delivery, or even thirds um, that we were used to. Where specifically in graphic novels, though, prose has always been a little complicated in the kids and the adult side. It was cash flow. That is like the term to talk about. It's cash flow. It's how much cash um, the company has at hand. Um, and it's a whole like complex finance thing that I don't truly understand. Um, and like, obviously, like people don't understand, like most publishing houses are like my art publishing houses. Macmillan is the only private publishing house out of the big four because it's no longer the big five, right? Um, and we're owned by like a German company, a Holtzbring. Um, and um, we get the only reason you see like uh, like graphic novel imprints within traditional publishing, like having a more steady footing and like, you know, it's less shaky when it comes to money and less shaky like when it comes to maybe being shuttered compared to like smaller comics people that are just surviving by themselves is that we have big papa money, right? Like if anything goes wrong in Mike Mullen, like somehow they, they have this weird financial relationship with our, you know, our German um, owner that they can borrow money from them. So there's always like a, a like us being, you know, uh, profitable on our own. Yeah, for sure we are, but also we, at least we have some support it was cash flow right so they just they were worried that they were we were going to tank and we we're going to do so bad during the pandemic that we would not have enough like we want to be green right uh, in the green as a company um so they did these payouts they like started breaking out these payouts by fourths and fifths depending how much money right was and they did say in the beginning of the pandemic that it it was going to be uh or the tone was very much it was going to be just a pandemic thing. They kept talking about cash flow. They could, so we're like, oh, we understand. Like, we understand that for the next whatever, two years or so. Um, Six will, weeks. You know, <laughs> at the time, we thought it was going to be a month. Yeah. Um, 
uh, this is going to be the situation. Like at the time we understood. And then the first year passed. And then they were like, this was the most successful year we've had in many years. And we're like, okay, cool. Um, so what about those payouts? And then the second year passed and they're like, this was even more successful of a year. And we're like, Mm -hmm. okay, awesome. Like, what about these payouts? Um, and now they've made it permanent and it's, it makes, it makes it so hard, um, as an editor, especially because I am like, so avidly on the side of creators like um for this like there's some issues that like i could be like torn on either side no i am fully on the side of creators about this especially for graphic novels because we just take longer to do and like some of these payouts they they thought about as a little like they thought about graphic novels they were like oh we're gonna make the payout slightly different for graphic novels but it's still not considered enough and it's still with the mindset of prose first as all of traditional publishing is we Graphic novels, even in like the the boom that's happening now, and everyone wants them, still come as like uh like an afterthought for people, right? Um, unfortunately, so like a, tra- a trade publishing is first led by adult pros, then they think about kids publishing, and within that umbrella, then after pros, they think about graphic novels. That's just how it goes. Um, so it's ridiculous. Like some of these payments, people are making no money, and they're split so like in three and and four and it's by tears and it's always been the case unfortunately i don't think uh there's unless you're making major bank on your first book or second book that people are doing other things on the side i just think it's gotten worse where like people have to take on full projects instead of like doing like covers or like doing illustration for new newspapers and magazines like people are out here doing two projects at the same time and Luckily, and for a second, we're in a place where we we can be very lenient with deadlines. I have a creator who basically told me, hey, like, I need to go and do something else for a while. <laughs> like, I need yeah. to put a pause for this and then go make money. And I'm like, you do you. Come mm-hmm. back when you're ready to continue this. Um, because like, we have a really healthy pipeline. And if a certain book can't make it on a season, we have enough books that can... Um, Whereas we can keep publishing the amount. We actually overpublish. We've been publishing more than we should be publishing for the last year or so. Um, and that's probably uh, because you've been doing so well with the last two years. I mean, if anybody... That too. Yeah, been, we're also like just over-acquiring. So like, over-acquiring. It, it's, it's like, it's a... It's a double-edged sword. Like the only reason we can be so flexible with how much, uh, like how much time we give people is that we have double the amount of books. We are always working on double the amount of books <laughs> that we should be, um, which then puts the burden on the editor because I'm always doing. So we publish forty-five books a year. Like I'm doing not like I'm not not I'm not working on ninety, but collectively we're working on ninety a year uh, when we can't even publish those full nineties. So that makes it very flexible, um, and I like that. I like I'm fine with taking a bit of the burden and making it so I can be super flexible with all my authors and not in a rush at all. But that also means they're probably doing other things on the side, and I'm aware of that. Um, I mean half the time it's like respecting as long as like if I signed up your book first and that it is your priority, even if you're working on other things, um, as long as that comes, ha- com- is delivered first before any other big project that you need to do, if it's like a direct competitor, then I'm fine with people doing whatever. Seeing that you have, I guess, a full pipeline of acquiring and also ready to publish, that also affects sort of the payouts too, because now just because you get acquired, 
you could be, uh, what, three to five years before the book sees the light of day. So now if somebody has to go get another job because the payments have been extended and that mean delays the completion of the book that you just of you acquired, does that push out the, the publication date too? Is it sort of just this uh, vicious cycle where because of their finance and how things are paid out, it delays even more. Am I making any sense with that kind of question? Yeah, you are. You know, you know? I mean, we, we publish books as they come and they land on sometimes like, even if we're supposed to only doing 45 books a year, we do more mm-hmm. depending on like what's ready or not. But yeah, if the creator is not, if they can't solely focus on the graphic novel, then they're going to be slower. Meaning the publication is going to be slower, meaning their publication, they, their publication payment is going to happen down the line when it comes in, you know, Um, it's unfortunate tied to that. Like, obviously there's like in progress payments and different things like that, that will keep feeding them a bit of money. Um, But that like final pub and it's like split pretty evenly. So like the, the on pub date on pub payment is like about the same as like progress payment. Um, But still they won't be able to see that money until it gets published. Now, there's a lot of money that you put out too. The publisher puts out that they're waiting because publishing, you know, you'll recoup your money from initial publishing. Is there a, a sort of a situation this puts you in as a, the editor and representative of the publisher of like, oh, we have we have this money hanging out, this spent money right here. When are we going to recoup? Do you start? It, it just seems like this could snowball into a big thing where now, even though you have this company that can loan you money and, you know, whole, you know, a few thousand dollars is not really a big issue that's out there waiting to be recouped, but does it, are you feeling pressure now about getting completions done too? Because of like, okay, we were expecting to recoup this money by publishing this book. Um, do you, does that, do you see what I'm saying of like the yeah, publisher? No, I don't, I, I don't concern myself with the financials too much. Like I, I am like, I am here to like make the books happen as soon as the, I, I tell my, uh, authors, this book will happen as fast or as slow as you want it to happen. And for me, that's more on them. You know, that's me thinking about them. Like if they want to get their money quick and they want to complete this, project fast and then whatever speed they want to go at i am happy some people just take a lot longer and they have to figure out other ways to like balance you know their life and it's very unfortunate that we're still not in a place where like a person can be doing a graphic novel and can you know feed themselves off of it um so i'm not here to be like trying to chase after people just because i i we want to publish the book and make money and get like our advance back I, that's not my position. Um, you know, like I want to push, publish the book eventually. You don't want to end up with uh, a book you paid for and then had to cancel because it was never coming. And that happens. Um, that happens often. And I think people don't understand that in general, like the the profit line for publishing is very, very thin. That is why it's hard because I'm like, one. I'm not really one full foot on one end and one full foot on the other. I just see how slight the margin is um, and people don't understand just how expensive printing is and how like ridiculous, like this, this industry, I truly don't, I like look at how we function in general, all companies in publishing. And I'm like, how do we do this? It's like a perfect balancing act. And it, it really does come down to pennies. Um, mm-hmm. 
just pennies multiplied by, you know, thousands of how a book is printed. Uh, so I do see, but I'm also like, there's money somewhere, you know, there's places to improve in paying people, paying our creators, paying our staff, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I'm not here to like, I don't think too much about, you know, like we have contracts, like people, I would like the books to be handed in, but there we do often, not often, I don't want to say often, but because we do wait it out. There's some books like, for example, and not on the fault of anyone in the project, but like there was a book that came out two years ago, like Shadow Life that I think we had for like, we acquired like seven years ago. Like this happens here and there where like a book, just unfortunate circumstances um, add up and it takes seven, eight years to publish a book. And we're the kind of company that we're like, we kind of look like sticking it out as far as we can, you know, as long as we can, we want, if we really believe in a project to acquire it, we want to publish it, even if that's like, nine, 10 years down the road. Um, but there have come, there have been projects where we were like, you're never going to turn this in, are you? And the creator's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, wow. And then we, I think we tend to be nicer than most, some places because uh, the publisher is in a position where they can ask for their money back or some of their money back, the advance they gave, because now they're mm-hmm. not going to recoup. And I think that we generally don't, um, we're pretty forgiving. Um, granted, take that with a grain of salt because that's just project by project and depending mm-hmm. how far they got, how much work they've put in so far. Um, but I think publishing tends to be just a little bit nicer than people think because it is a, a money-losing game. Like, I think that people don't understand that publishers lose money on most books. And yes. then the few monies, they, the few books they make a lot of money on is what keeps them a balance to then keep acquiring new projects. Um that is like the whole, that's truly the the whole idea behind the very cruel, like front list, back list, like mid list, whatever uh, algorithm going on. This with the back list. Now, even though it might be up front with books lose money and you have the bigger books to sort of keep you going and uh, which allows publishers to, to maybe cultivate. But do books eventually, if they sell well, will they make their money back? say 10 years down the road when you know when you say that they lose money up front but what about the long tail of it do they eventually make their money back or so um it's not necessarily losing money up front it's just total but like no yes they're um especially graphic novels have a very long tail kids books in general (laughs) have a very long tail very much longer than well i don't think picture books do per se picture book market is like so hard um but i think in general kids books have a longer tail than adult does um and that's why we're so we focus so much on our backlist and graphic novels too have a very long tail compared comparatively even in um kids books so a lot of books eventually make their money back um but it's so complex because like for example like people talk about earning out like versus like profit um, like an author might never earn out like they, and that happens. I want to say more than half the times. I want to say two thirds of the times, at least an author will not earn out their advance. Um, and that does not mean it was not profitable for the, for the, uh, in company, the publishing house. Um, do I understand how that math works? No, because I specifically became an editor because I'm not good at math. <laughs> um, but, um, Two thir- like I would say at least two thirds of the creators never they're, they're they never make up the money that we quote unquote lent them yeah. um or gave them in the beginning 
Um, and that doesn't mean we won't work with them again. It's like the fact of them, like just the truth of the industry. Um, do we like our creators earning out? Yes. Uh, and one, they'll get royalties, right? They'll start seeing that little bit of money, uh, whatever. I don't know how many times it comes out, like three times a year. And that's good for them. And some people, if their royalties are good enough, um, and in, in trade publishing, they tend to be pretty decent. That is enough money sometimes to get them from one paycheck to the other. Um, so it's always good to earn out, but most people don't. Um, and yeah, we we lose money on a lot of books in that sense that sometimes they don't earn out and they don't profit, like they don't make their money fully back. But, you know, it's like, it's it's so hard to explain because like some books do really well in the beginning and then, for example, don't get adopted by schools and libraries and colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 10 years, they go OSI, um, out of stock indefinitely, meaning like we, we stop trying to sell it. And that's okay. Like 10 years is a good time. You know, five years is probably a good time. And then there's some books, for example, American Born Chinese that just... Yeah. blew up at evergreen. the beginning and then is evergreen like got adopted by every single classroom <laughs> in this country and just keeps selling forever uh now like the whole series is going to come out so that's going to be another boom like i think like people don't realize how important unfortunately like this is a different conversation when it comes to doll especially because people forget for a second does adult as well um yeah. we've been doing adult since 2006 but the kids market where you where the where the gold mine really is is if you get adopted by like school and library because then your tail is even longer like you have these classrooms just like asking for this book back year after year and then you have new readers every year you know mm-hmm. um i think that's like where the like people forget like the golden nugget it's like it would be amazing if like and but only certain books unfortunately like you know like get adopted like things that like have cultural value or like are like civics or like you know things like that not like none of the really fun one really fun fiction unfortunately but yeah it's it's hard um because there's so many different variables and situations for a book um depending on i'm sorry but when you're looking at um when you're looking at acquiring a books are you looking at a book that can sort of uh, reach an audience like every five years because like in animation, especially young animation, I learned that you have a new audience coming through and like what you just touched upon when it, when it comes to schools, that every new fall, you have a new audience for these books. Uh, do you consider that aspect? Is that something, especially, you know, YA and, you know, and uh, children's comic graphic novels of that you're going to be seeing a turnover of readers um, in, you know, every five years. Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we're always thinking ahead. <laughs> like we're now what we're working on. Um, we're like in winter 2024 or something. Oh, wow. Um, it's, we're always thinking like one, unfortunately, like there's no such thing as like being in whatever in the moment in publishing. And it's kind of hard. It actually bleeds into my life that I'm constantly thinking about the future because of the job I have. Cause we're always thinking two years ahead or a year and a half ahead. Um, but when we acquire, we know the book will be done for three years. So we're thinking, what will the market look like in three years from now? And there's certain things that are evergreen, like uh, contemporary, middle grade, contemporary YA, memoir YA, m- memoir middle grade. Those are things that like you can just acquire at any moment and they'll do well. Um, but like we do think a lot about what are the readers that are reading, you know, Dave Pilkey and like Raina Telgemeier are going to want 
in five years, in six years. Like, that's why we're like, we're so like, I know 2019, like I want to, uh, maybe it's a little narcissistic, but I do think that like for a second kind of like led like at least the queer YA moment that started in 2019 with specifically graphic novels and like getting space in Barnes and Nobles for graphic novels for like YA graphic novels and things like that. Like certain like Scholastic at the time wasn't even doing YA. Like they started doing YA a little bit after. So like we've always been thinking about why as was the, the next horizon after middle grade and luck, hopefully adult comes soon. You know, it's like kind of hard in the adult uh, graphic novel space right now. And, but we've always been trying to push it. And you always try to think about the next group because if kids are starting to read graphic novels and we have huge manga readers, we have huge comics readers in the young age, you're going to want, they're going to get older, right? They're going to want why they're going to want adult. So you're always thinking about that. And you're always thinking about like what might be popular in three years. Like, for a while, like I want to say that like vampires and like werewolves are having a resurrection, right? Like we we're we're it's it's like fashion. We're cycling right back to like the early, you know, two thousands, like mid two thousands. Um, so these kids are gonna want this again in a few years and they're gonna want creepy again in a few years. Um and things like that. So yeah, we're always thinking about that when we acquire um about what's gonna work in the future get back to extended payouts and sort of put a period on that from what you were saying before there are ways of getting around this and not feeling like you're going to starve to death just looking you know working on one book what do you say to the creators when you explain the the extended payouts that if you deliver this book if you deliver it earlier or depending on what you stay with the schedule um there are ways of moving on to another project or, you know, and establishing a career, you're not going to get sidelined by not having income. Is there, how do you, I guess, address that and sort of encourage them to approach it in a, in a way that is not negative and that, that maybe if they can jump into the work, it's not going to be an issue. It's very difficult because so one, I'm like, all the finance and payout stuff, I'm hopefully talking to the agent too. And yeah. I'm the most comfortable talking to agent because I just don't feel like I can give good advice or like how, yeah, how people should manage their finances and like balance their work. Like I, at best, I try to be flexible. Um, and I always tell them, look, you know, you have, you can make the choice of like, and I'm here for you if you want to do this fast or if you want to do this slow um i mean we we establish a pace in the beginning like i asked for like estimate deadlines and i asked you know like how long do you think you need for like thumbnails how long do you think you need for pencils and we established that like skeleton deadline and that's me trying my best to keep them on the more not accelerated but what their ideal pace is and i want to say like nine times out of ten they fall out of that pace that just life happens and the only thing I can offer them when that happens is, hey, you, we can just extend this deadline um, and you do what you need to do on your own, whatever caused this delay or maybe it wasn't. Like some, some creators I work with have full-time jobs and they're doing this on the side and some, this is their full-time job and they have to do a lot of balancing. So there is other considerations they have to deal with that I can't necessarily advise them on. I just can give them the support of being flexible. Um, yeah. And it's unfortunate. Like I often, I am, I have the conversation about payouts with um, agents a lot yeah. and 
I think we're gotten to a point where like they understand our frustrations because we are put like our back against the wall. We have higher ups have told us that we can't stray. Like we're not allowed. And obviously like people don't understand that when we sign something up, it has to go through like four other people, like the head of our publisher and the head of their boss and finance guy. Like they all have to sign off on every single piece of document. Um, so if we don't follow their rules, they just will stop the document in its track and send us an email and be like, what the heck? Um, so we we kind of just, we have to do what they say. And even if we don't like it, we don't. Then people also don't understand that like editorial, at least in our house, we request every payment. So now that payments are split arbitrarily, like 12 months, like for a writer, 12 months after they turn in their, who's going to remember that date? Like there's so many things we have to keep track of already. And now we have to keep track of double the amount of payment dates to then go request it from the payment department. That's just asking for more slip ups. You know, even we added in a calendar and things like that. We're trying to do ways to like keep ourselves remembering all these really arbitrary dates are not tied to anything else. Um, like at least unpub date is tied to unpub date, like the pub date. But some, sometimes these pub dates move. Now they're moving all the time because of the supply chain issue. So it's a mess. And if like the agent is not chasing it and you think that agents would be better about chasing, but half of them don't. Oh, half really? of them are really aggressive about it. And then the <laughs> other half are like checked out. That is like, there's like almost no in between. Um, and I actually really, really am happy about the agents are aggressive about it. Cause it, it's hard. I can, it, I deal in one week, like my hands touch at least 20 different books in different process, like in completely different stages of their life. So like, it's really hard to keep track of these things. Like there's always things that are going to be slipped up, slip up. And the last thing we want to slip up is payments, but these new payments and like how they're split and having them split three to four to five times makes it really hard when you're dealing with 90 books a year. So the agent actually could be an ally for you and, you know, and an ally for and the they creator. Often in are, dealing, but dealing some of them this. aren't. Right. <laughs> and then I'm like, in my head, I'm like, look, I'm sorry this slipped up, but also like, it's not fully my fault. <laughs> Part of your job is also chasing us. And yeah, I'm sorry to say that I, I would love to be like, I would love to give you the ideal situation where, but none of us are perfect. We're just people. We're not machines, right? Like there's, we, there are unfortunately going to be issues down the line. And if like more people can contribute in reminding each other about things, then that'd be fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. all of this would be solved if, if like all publishers had like really fancy author portals, like, some people have author portals. Like, unfortunately, Macmillan does not, which is per- frankly ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. We don't even have an author portal in the most basic sense of they can find out their pub date. They can find how many books have sold, like very basic information. Mm-hmm. We don't even have that in Macmillan at all. Uh, there's other houses that have author portals, like author sign in and they can get basic information. No, like here we still have to send out emails to tell people their pub dates, which is like a lot of emails and still have to like, Tell like every time someone asks us how many books have sold, we have to go find that and then relay that information. And after a book pubs, that happens like every three weeks, which is like understandable, but also very infuriating when it's happening so many times across the board. Um, so an author portal, one would help some of that. And luckily some houses have that. But then if it was even more advanced in the place where like when people were done with a certain stage of their work, they can go in and request the payment themselves. Who best knows what they just finished than the author and the creator, right? Mm-hmm. So they request it. And obviously, you have someone on the other side, the other end, 
uh, approving it because it's not like just they're going to request <laughs> and the payment gets to them, right? Someone has to approve it. And that makes so much sense to me. But will we ever get that advanced, quote unquote, advanced in our technology in, in publishing? No, because we're archaic and we literally live in the 80s and have only put a foot in maybe the 90s right now. Um, that's how behind we are. I was funny when I was talking to the folks at Random House Graphic, they were talking about they were getting ready to be move everything online. And the you know, when the pandemic kicked in, they were sort of all set. It rushed them, but they were doing their best to be able to work, you know, set everything up that they could work from home. I wonder if they have that aspect of, of portals available for their creators too. They have an author portal, but not in the advanced. No industry, no mm-hmm. house has the advanced one I was talking about, about yeah. like authors yeah. being able to request, you know, payments. Yes, I think almost every other house, every other big house has an author portal. And we are also fully digital. We just mm-hmm. don't have that specific that part. That specific like, thing. Yeah, like, why? Who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't. And it takes money to build one, right? So, like, yes. it's like asking, like, the big boss, like, hey, can you, like, send about, like, I don't know how many, like, a million dollars to, like, build this? Uh, it's not their priority right now, unfortunately. So, yeah. That, that. Because then all of a sudden you're getting emails, you're getting phone calls, you're getting whatever you have to respond, you know, that distracts from your day to day of like focusing on editing and stuff. Because what jobs is this? Like getting information for people. And I'm like, yeah, if you're talking about burnout, when it comes to burnout, editor burnout, this would help. You know, if I wasn't like the the payment chaser and the (laughs) payment requester and the every other information requester, it would help my inbox and my burnout for sure. So I've had you on for a good amount of time. Um, I, I wanted to switch gears and just have some fun because on your Twitter account, you've been watching a lot of Marvel stuff. So um, <laughs> you were talking, I haven't watched Moon Knight. To be honest, I didn't really like the trailers, even though I grew up reading Moon Knight. But now it has occurred to me, I'm like, the thing about Moon Knight that appeals to me and what creators have been taking advantage of, and maybe this is what the show itself has done, is that Moon Knight can be, Almost anything that your mind, anything your mind takes you. He's such a character who, um, because of the character's state of mind, there's a lot of worlds open up and a lot of shifts that you can go in. You can go from, oh, he's just a Batman ripoff to this character who's all just about Egyptian gods and Mm -hmm. insanity. And... Uh, and then, of course, you've been talking about Scarlet Witch, who, you know, we're talking about what the day after George Perez's passing was just announced. And Scarlet Witch, because of George Perez, probably is one of my favorite Avengers. And I was just saying because she seems the most human. She's the most powerful, one of the most powerful Avengers, but also the most human. The romance between her and Vision always sort of got me as real, which is a weird way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. Um, just that these two characters, these outsiders sort of care for each other so deeply. And mm-hmm. the writers just seem to, it just, the writers seem to just get that and be able to convey that really well with the, the Avengers books that I read and you know, that they were in. Um, what what are, are you happy with Moon Knight? Let's start with Moon Knight first. Where where are you? Have you seen the end? Or has it paid off? Yes, <laughs> I have seen a non-spoiler. I think it started very slow, but it ended very strong. Um, and I think it would... And honestly, I, I think Oscar Isaac carried. Uh, there were like smart decisions made about the, the story. How the story was told was really fantastic. 
Um, and supposedly I was reading a lot on Twitter from people that have DID and they were saying that, yeah, that this actually was a very decently respectful interpretation of it, which I, I'm happy they did the research, you know, and Oscar Isaac was just fantastic. I truly don't know who else would have pulled off doing three different, you know, personalities. Um, and like, he was so dedicated to it. And yeah, I think, I think it was really good. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely like, one of my favorites it's not i have i'm very weird um i think objectively it's second to wandavision in vision like vision of like uh, how they were like we're gonna do a very good series and like it's gonna be very beautiful and the story is gonna be very intricate and well planned i think in that sense wandavision's first and then that second out of all (laughs) the shows um and I loved like the Egyptian as- aspects yeah. of it. It was it had a lot of fun at times, you know, like unreliable narrator. You truly every episode you end and you're like, I don't know where this is going um, after this. Um, and I but I think it ended super strong. So I really loved it. Um, and it was very interesting seeing this new ca- this kind of character that is dealing with their own, you know, mental issues and that's taken really seriously. And then on the flip side, it's like, okay, he's like an Egyptian superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very fun. And like seeing all the di- deities, like the Egyptian deities come to life in like really fun ways. Like Tawari is like one of my, she's forever one of my favorites of the series. Um, she's like this, for people who haven't seen me, yeah, this hippo goddess lady yep. of fertility. Um, she's super fun. Uh, <laughs> so I enjoyed it a lot. I think they did a really good job with it. Uh, and if who knows that there's going to be a second season, but I don't, I, there might not be. Um, and if there's not, I'm okay with where it ended. <laughs> and the visually, I mean, one of the things that appeals to me, Moon Knight's one of the most interesting characters visually in comics. Um, people who really get them have really gone, you know, managed to take advantage of that. And does the show really the visual aspect, I mean, all the, the gods and just mm-hmm. the, the whole aspect of the Egyptian imagery and just Moon Knight being this character in white popping yes. from the darkness and stuff. I mean, it's they all there. really, really go into it. They, like, spend so much energy on the little details. Like, when he, like, you know, flies and shoots its cape, it's always a crescent moon. And, like, there's, oh, uh, especially when, because, you know, like, when he has different outfits depending on the personality um like the more complex one mark's outfit is like very complex and you have like the blades in the chest that are super cool and they're also crescent crescents um they play a lot with imagery and it is all about imagery right it's about the perceiving and perception um is all that moonlight at its core is is about um and they do play a lot with that. And you have a bunch of beautiful, it's a lot of if it takes place in Egypt and you have not the usual weird yellow tones that people misrepresent Egypt as, and you have Egypt in full color, you have Egypt at night. Um, you have the field of reeds at one point, and you have like all this like Egyptian deity stuff that's like beautifully done. Um, I think the imagery is gorgeous. Again, second second to one the vision and not even that because i don't like comparing them because they're completely different shows i think it's gorgeous it's one of the best things about it it's beautiful to see and what about scarlet witch i mean i haven't seen dr strange i probably maybe you've seen mm-hmm. tonight but i was looking forward to it was great you know i think uh sam raimi dr strange awesome and then finding out that scarlet witch will now be playing in this movie and continuing on and be a big part of it i mean where where are you were you a scarlet witch fan 
have you I've analytic? been a Scarlet Witch fan forever. Oh, okay, um, great. <laughs> let me also let me phrase this for readers. I am not uh, I I I don't read direct like market comics. Marvel. Sorry. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a faker. I, I just read I just an MCU fan. Um I go in and then I do my research after. I, I'm a okay. I'm a Wikipedia diver and like I watch a lot of YouTube videos of fans, you know, fans explaining Easter eggs and stuff. That's how I get all my background information and all like the theories and stuff. I just watch people who are knowledgeable and do the reading mm-hmm. and absorb it through them. Um <laughs> It's just, it's always been really hard to get into. Like, I just think it's a complete, it's very hard and intimidating for someone who hasn't been doing it all their lives to just jump in. um, Mm -hmm. And I'm just not going to. I'm going to keep enjoying it off (laughs) on the sidelines. But I've, since uh, her introduction, um, very back then, um, what what was the first movie? It was, um, not Civil War, um, before Civil War. Ultron, they, right? Yeah, Ultron. Yeah, the Ultron, the second Avengers. I movie. loved her because I love witches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love witches. And I knew she was going to be Scarlet Witch, even though they weren't calling her that. And I've always loved her power. Um, so she's always, I think, since then, she was my favorite female Avenger. At the time, like, if I had to rate, like, Tony, like, RDJ, Tony, um, Iron Man has always been my favorite. He's my top, top. Um, and then I want to say Scarlet Witch is second. And then, you know, Iron Man died. So then I focused all my attention and the empty hole I had in my heart to mostly Spider-Man because I love, obviously, I love Tom Holland as Spider-Man and Scarlet Witch. Those are where my attentions are at now, especially with stage four. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love Scarlet Witch dearly. And I think WandaVision was just amazing. I, I loved it for Elizabeth, too, as like an amazing actress that finally is getting like the recognition that she deserves and is putting some of the best acting chops in all of MCU into <laughs> this character. Um, but what people don't understand is that, like, as WandaVision was amazing, and everyone, like, gave it its props, right? They were, I think, filming um, Doctor Strange 2, um, um, Multiverse of Madness, at the same time or right after WandaVision. <laughs> there was, like, some weird, like... So, like, I loved the movie, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there is, you will see as a fan of Scarlet Witch, a bit of not, like, there's a lack of continuity um, um, in character, um, in nuance. Um, I loved the movie. Uh, that Let me be very frank about that. I didn't think the movie was great, but I loved it. I loved it. It was super fun. Like, Sam Raimi, like, that, I never thought I was going to see horror. Like, as much horror as I saw and as much campy horror as I saw in oh, that great. movie. Never thought I was going to see that in MCU. And I've always been a horror fan, like, because of my mental state right now, like, or in the last few years, I'd see less horror. But I grew up on horror. Like, it was the thing I would go see in a movie theater. Um, so I loved it. I was cracking up probably in moments I should have been laughing. Um, but I thought it was such, I think it's the most fun I've had since Ragnarok. Um, so I think that says a lot and I think there should be Marvel movies that are fun I don't think especially now that we're in stage four they're having they feel less bound to like the what I call the template that they established in stage three right the the, the amount of seriousness and about the amount of comedy they were doing in stage three they kind of got it down to like a perfection and you when in stage three you knew what you were going into you knew how much you were going to be laughing and you know how much you were going to be feeling and in your feels but now in stage four i think because it's so far along they don't care about attracting new people who is going to join in this far in in the mcu right 
and they're just having a lot of fun. That's why we see a lot of divisive opinions. Like Eternals was divisive. Actually, she wasn't really that divisive, but Eternals was a completely different kind of movie that we've seen MCU before. WandaVision itself as a show was super divisive in the beginning because people were like, what is going on? Yeah, that exactly. was a new take. They're just taking really big risks now because I feel like they can because they know that half, at least half the fandom is going to keep watching whatever they put out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this was big risks. In some parts, big rewards. And in other parts, fell flat. Um, and But I don't, for me personally, what fell flat didn't, I'm not fully concerned about that because I was very entertained and it was a very good experience. But I do think some Scarlet Witch fans are going to come out of this movie a bit like I did, whereas I was I was like, where are we going from now? Um, and some might just get fully offended. Oh, really? Um, by well, don't happens. tell me. Don't tell I'm me. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not. I'm not going to give you any details. Um, I, I wasn't, as, as a Scarlet Witch fan, and if people read the comics, I think they're going to be even less offensive because, like, they're drawing a lot on stuff that happened in the comics. Like, none okay. of this is completely new. Uh, they're just like, you know, they kind of like Frankenstein things, as you know, the yeah. MCU does. They pick and choose from different parts. Um, but supposedly, supposedly Elizabeth Olsen signed the contract. Who knows? I don't actually know if this is fully confirmed. It's going to be on for many new movies. So I'm really interested to see what happens after this and what kind of role she takes. Um, she carried this movie. I think if you're a Scarlet Witch fan, you're either way, even if you get really mad or if you really love it and have a lot of fun, you're going to be very invested because honestly, this movie should have been called Scarlet Witch, Multiverse of Madness. Sorry for okay. the Doctor Strange fans out there. I'm um, going to go, we're going to finish this and I'm going to just go see the movie now because yes. that even makes me want to see it, you know, once again with hearing about Sam Raimi and stuff like that. That's like, uh, I don't care. I mean, like Ragnarok, which is not my favorite one, but it's a it's a hoot. And it's, if you really look at it, like a, you know, storytelling crazy, you know, is it, no, it's loose, it's fast and loose, but it's so entertaining. So mm-hmm. it's just a fun in two hours in a movie. And that's sort of, yeah, it sounds like what you're just saying is that Marvel's just like, let's just bring even more of the sort of fun and craziness into the Marvel universe that from the comics and these movies and not worry about being like, put you through this perfect emotional evolution for the next two and a half hours. And yeah. I was really happy to see that Dr. Strange is only about two hours long too. <laughs> so Yeah. I saw that. I was like, after seeing so many three hour movies, I was like, Oh my God, this is only two hours. Like, and one of my friends said that this movie felt really comic booky to her. And she's right. Like there's certain <laughs> like slapstick moments where you're like, this literally just reads like, like, like the really cheesy parts of a comic book. There is, there's a lot of genres Like you're going to go into this movie. You're like, what is going on? Cause it's like horror and also slapstick. At times and kind of campy at other times, um, so for some people that's what why it felt like kind of um, not cohesive. But for me, I'm just, I was just surprised. Me saying that a Marvel movie surprised me is like shocking this late in the game, and that's kind of what I want. And that is very hard to do if you don't take humongous risks, right? Like I just want to be kept surprised and entertained from now on. And I think they're going to be doing a lot of more wild things like that too you know, cause that reaction. Awesome. Well, Hey, um, our time is up. (laughs) So thank you very much for spending your Sunday morning with me. And I'm going to go see Dr. Strange probably in about a half hour. So (laughs) have fun. Well, and it was great talking to you. Great catching up with you. And we should do, we shouldn't let like two hours, two years go by next time. So, uh, don't work too hard and I will be talking to you later. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. See ya.